Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode 44 in our series for 2015, and today's date is Friday the 4th of December. Leon, what have we got on the schedule for this week? Well, we're having a chat with uh, Dennis Benjamin. He's the CEO and founder of uh, two great sites, Informal and Apps Wiz. And uh, we're going to be talking all about communication in business through technology. So it's going to be fascinating. And much needed a bit of communication in a lot of companies. Absolutely, absolutely. And um, then we're going to have a chat with economist Stephen Kakoulis all about Australia's GDP numbers. Which uh, actually look a bit better than we thought. Much better than expected. But uh, first of all, let's have a chat with Dennis Benjamin. Dennis, tell us about Informatel. Uh, Informatel was started some 28 years ago. We, we pride ourselves on being able to provide communication solutions for any size business, whether it be SMS, voice or mobile apps. 28 years ago, pre-internet. Pre-internet we started. That's so correct. what was an app like back 28 years ago? Well, it wasn't uh, in, in actual fact uh, an app, Gary, as much as um, it was a service that we provide for um, anyone in the TV industry or promotion on in, in a magazine or anyone wanting just to uh, gather information through the phone. And that was delivered telegraphically? Um, well, using the phone. And, yeah. Yeah. So tell us how Informatel would work for a client. Informatel looks to... Uh, maximize the best way of connecting our clients with their customers. So we look at uh, whether it be SMS and um, or a voice solution or a mobile app, and we, we look and say, hey, this is the best way for you to reach and engage with your customers. So who would your clients be? Our clients range from uh, the small one-man or one-person uh, business up, into, uh, up to the carriers and, and, and various banks. How does it work? I mean... How exactly? I mean, is it is it text? Is it voice? Is it a bit of both? Yeah, it's a bit of both. And what's really terrific about our platform is that uh, we've got the capability to give the customer the choice, and so that the end customer or consumer can say, "Look, I want to receive a message on my landline by way of a voice call, or I can receive it via a text message or uh, via an app and an alert." Dennis, the voice is obviously the next big thing in communication, isn't it? You, you don't have to look at what Apple and Android are doing with voice. I think it's a combination of just being flexible in terms of giving the customer the choice. We're seeing the, um, the older demographic uh, saying, hey, I want to receive a voice call. And we're seeing a sector of the population where they, they're English is not their first tongue, saying, hey, just uh, give me a call with uh, in my native tongue. Talking directly to the app and getting response, you know, a la Siri? Yeah, look, all sorts of ways, and um, rather than label it whether it's a Siri or whether it's using uh, a, a capability like WhatsApp, but it's all about being able to give a solution to a customer very, very quickly to identify what their need, our customers and, um, and uh, allowing them to be able to connect. Well, tell us about AppSwiz. AppSwiz is born to be different in terms of um, being able to allow any size business to be able to get, uh, or professional uh, organisation or professional as such, to get their own mobile app. So you might be you might be a health uh, allied health professional, and you want people to book their appointments more simply uh, by just getting an app. Then um, 
that works. We, we They can allow their customers to book an appointment. They're not feeling well. They've got a toothache at 3 o'clock in the morning. They don't have to wait to the, speak to the receptionist at 9 a.m. They book the appointment and get that appointment and get to the dentist when, when it suits them. I've noticed, though, uh, in your list of clients uh, out in the hallway, I mean, that they all seem to be sort of very localised, extremely localised. So, uh, you know, you'll have uh, the LJ Hooker at Karatha, for example. <laughs> Uh, you'll have uh, Toyota in Canberra, for example. Yeah. Uh, so they really, really highly localised businesses. Is that part of the model? It was part of it. What we've been so far is in test mode. We're about to really roll out uh, a production level that uh, will make Australia proud because uh, there's nothing like us in Australia that uh, will get out to being able to reach businesses where, wherever they are all over the world. And and the beauty with this model too is that uh, you you have to constantly update the app, don't you? That that's part of the service. We don't charge for that. We we it's part of the support package that um, we're updating the app and we're updating the features. So any one of our features, we've got over eighty features now. Any one of those features is available uh, for any of our c- customers to be able to add in and, and use or to get us to help them as as are free alerts to their customers. How have apps changed in the the last two or three years? I mean, there's been enormous progress and apps have become much more important to the consumers out there. But how has the service itself developed? What are some of the main moves that you've made? Okay, well, it's very, very important to observe how people are using the phone. Um, it's gone from being a voice uh, platform to being something that we're, uh, we're accessing around every five minutes, some, some 200 times a day. And we saw a meteoric rise of uh, use of um, uh, mobile internet and uh, people understand that. But what they don't understand is that about two years ago, the use of apps actually surpassed on phones, surpassed the use of mobile internet. Do you have mostly Australian clients? Do you have overseas clients? Today we have mostly Australian uh, clients, but in the next, uh, we're thinking in the next couple of months that's going to dramatically change, and um, uh, we're going to see going to be swamped by uh, major US partners. The the US obviously for English for because of language partly, but Asia would be a growth area as well, wouldn't it for you? Oh, absolutely. You know. Um, we see Asia and China in particular as being, being extremely attractive and we've brought on a number of staff that uh, have uh, the capabilities to help us in that regard. So the language problem, you've got Chinese and, and Asian staff, so you can produce an app that's flogging Holden in Beijing if you want to. That, that would be a, a great, an interesting uh, thing. Interesting challenge. Yep, we're looking or, forward to or it. Or alternatively, you could be developing an app for a Chinese company. Absolutely. Yep, definitely. Mobile phones are bigger than almost anything, aren't they? So this, this is obviously a huge market potentially for you. Oh, undoubtedly, we see uh, Asia as being a cornerstone of where, where, where huge growth will come from. And you just look at the population numbers and you just have to take that uh, you know, Asia is being the centre of where we where we need to be. Marketing of an app is is a different sort of thing too. How do you handle that? Good question, Gary. What we've done is we've we've looked at how people are commu- make decisions in t- terms of buying, and uh, we've a- analysed that and put a lot of time and effort into being able to reach customers 
uh, very effectively uh, to make them in, inform them and make them aware of why they need an app and how it's going to help their business. And that's that's been a key part of our focus over the last several months. And then the back end that you've got, say, for example, take one for an example, not one of yours, but the AFL app will, will give you access to a video of a game incident, won't it? And this sort of sight, sound, voice thing is developing quite quickly, isn't it? It is. And uh, what we've done is we've integrated all forms of uh, social media or most common forms of social media into our apps as one of our features, as, as different features. So if you had a YouTube as, uh, or many YouTubes in your library as a business, we incorporate that into the app so that people can access the, that library of YouTubes as they can newsletters, as they can uh, access to Facebook and, uh, and every other form of social media. It's interesting, uh, I mean, with the recent release of Apple TV and uh, Google's release yesterday of, of their products, it's clear that apps on TV, on digital TV, will soon be replacing channels. Where do you see that heading? Apps are just they're here to stay, and um, and we're going. They're they're a form of convenience of how we communicate. So we're seeing that you might be a tradesman, for example, and you use that regular tradesman. So you want to book into the appointment with that tradesman. We've got an app for, for that tradesman. So the tradesman will be in the app store in Google Play. And if you're watching your TV, to come back to that example, and you say, hey, look, the the plumber, we need to call the plumber, you'll go onto your TV, you'll click onto that app, and you'll, you'll be able to make your appointment. So you could see a plumber could have a, a demonstration little video um, element in, in his thing, which raises the point, how adequate is bandwidth in Australia for the sort of business you're running? Well, I think the things that, the, that Australia is doing uh, right now obviously help, but um, there's going to be uh, continued uh, demands on, on uh, bandwidth, and I'm even concerned that the satellite that they just put up overnight will have uh, a limited number of users before it starts to um, uh, be less effective. So bandwidth is, is obviously a concern. For the development, the added complexity that probably the app users will demand of you, uh, you'll need more bandwidth and faster processing in, in a mobile phone or on a computer. Uh, the more bandwidth, the, the better, but uh, certainly we're not having too many problems with our apps and, and people being able to access them today. Yeah, because uh, Australia's um, mobile networks are probably better than the landline in terms of uh, bandwidth availability. Well, um, if I were a telco, I'm not sure that I'd be investing too much in landlines today. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Yes, of course, of course. So where do you see the business heading looking further out? We're uh, very, very ambitious and uh, hungry for substantial growth, and we see extensive growth uh, occur in the apps market. And, and, and importantly, being able to be, because we have SMS as well and voice platforms, being able to promote the app for our customers to be able to promote to their consumers the availability of the app um, in simple ways is very, very important. One final question. Uh, all of this is. The apps and uh, SMS, it's all replacing email, isn't it? Email's been waning for a long time in terms of um, uh, number of emails read 
um, you know, the, there's no comparison between the immediacy and the, the read rate of, um, uh, well, there is a comparison, but it's not a very favourable one between um, emails and SMS or mobile alerts. Dennis Benjamin, thank you very much for your time. Thanks very much, Leon. Thanks, Gary. Well, as we said and agreed, uh, the bigger the company, the worse the communication often happens to be. Yes, and uh, it really does make, you know, developments like uh, AppsWiz uh, really makes you wonder what's going to happen to email. Well, even now, I mean, um, you get text messages and things like that are uh, happening more than emails. That's right. But, of course, emails are a legal document. Yes, which yes. Is often a trap. That's right. So anyway, uh, now let's have a chat with uh, economist Stephen Kakoulis. And uh, what an amazing GDP figure. Not bad. Look, it's come after a very weak one. The previous quarter, we've got 0.3. It was revised up a tiny bit. Uh, but 0.9 is pretty good. And the 2.5 is okay, all things considered. So, um, yeah, in, in a way, I've just gone through the details. There's nothing really surprising. You know, business investment down, net exports up, dwelling construction up, personal consumption growing reasonably, 2.9 through the year. So not a bad result, but, um, yeah, I think they'll take it. Well, uh, g- given that um, uh, Varoufakis was predicting during the week that Australia Australia was going to head towards a recession. It's not bad. Uh, we're a long way from that. Now, look, it still could happen. <laughs> but, gee, you know, we've got interest rates already very low. We've got the very low Aussie dollar. Look, it's gone up two cents in the last month or so. But, look, it's still 73-ish, whatever it is, 72. So it's still very, very low. Um, and, look, you never rule these things out. But the probabilities would have to be fairly remote, uh, you would say. Because if we did see the wheels fall off, as Glenn Stephen said in his little um, press release yesterday, you know, we've got scope to cut interest rates dot, 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 if needed. And at the moment, they're happy with the house prices coming off the boil. They're happy with GDP. They're just going to sit there for, well, well, obviously two months till February, but they're going to sit there a long time and not do anything. Well, obviously, they've kept their interest rates on hold, but, I mean, the, the Reserve Bank will be watching out for a few other things, like, for example, the, the inflation figures in January. And, of course, you've got the Reserve, uh, the, uh, the Fed in the US will be meeting on December the 15th. Indeed, yes. So, globally, the US Federal Reserve meeting been well flagged, of course, the rate hike that well, I guess we're all waiting to see. That's really important. And then a link to that, I guess, is what happens to the dollar. Does the US dollar actually rebound? Now, it's well been priced in. So, in a way, the US dollar hasn't really gone up much in the last uh, few weeks, even though the interest rate expectations have been increasingly locked in. The, the other questions, of course, of course, keep coming back to you know, what's happening in China, what's happening to these commodity prices. And you know, as we speak here, the, the iron ore prices are fresh, you know, eight, nine, ten year low. Um, gold and other commodity prices are pretty poor. Copper took a big hit earlier in the week. Um, so we've got this scenario. Is China um, doing enough to get its growth rate back higher to see the commodity prices move higher? So you know, early days yet, but um, you know, they, they, the Chinese want to grow their economy and um, we'd like to see that happening too here in Australia. Well, I mean, the issue is, isn't it, that uh, the, the iron ore price is down, I mean, last I saw was about $42.80 and it's heading south. There are some, there's one economist who was tipping that it would end up somewhere in the 30s. And of course, that's going to hit the MIFO, which is coming out in later this month. And uh, there's going to be a sharp drop in government revenue. How do you think uh, the iron ore price, the falling iron price, iron ore price is going to affect Australia? Look, it's fallen a long way already. I think the peak back three and a half years ago was about $180 a tonne. So down into these low 40s, you know, as you said, uh, 42 
243-ish dollars a ton is a massive fall already. And clearly, clearly, we look at the share price of Fortescue, of uh, BHP, of well, even the minnows, you know, Atlas Iron, who are struggling to pay their interest costs when these prices are so very, very low. Look, it's having a huge impact on national income. It's having a huge impact on business investment. Look, I think you've touched on a really good point there with the company profit uh, data. Um, and it's certainly something that I've come across in the last couple of months as I've, as I've toured around the countryside and uh, spoken to a number of corporates. The, the feeling was that if, if you were a business uh, and you kept your head above water when the currency was at parity those days, you know, two or three years ago, and, and you were relying on either exporting or you were competing with uh, with what were very, very cheap imports and you kept your head above water, now they're in the low 70s, you're doing really well. And it's industries such as wine, so the wine sector is doing well, okay, a small part of the economy. But things like tourism is bouncing back, that not only are inbound tourists coming into Australia, but we Australians are all of a sudden finding it a lot more expensive to go over to California or Bali, so we're holidaying in Queensland and Tasmania or whatever. So in a sense... The currency is having an effect on the domestic parts of the economy as well as the uh, internationally traded ones. I think I think that's showing up in profitability in the non-mining parts of the economy. Of course, you know the banks are still doing pretty well despite the slowing in housing. They're making you know lots of money still. So you you, you scour around the whole economy, and yes, mining is weak. It's dreadful. It's going to be weak for another year, maybe two. But the other parts are actually finding some traction and are actually looking a little bit better. And that that would have pointed to a good GDP figure. Now, so looking ahead, you've got the Fed's going to cut interest rates or raise interest rates, and that surely the the market would have priced that in. But how do you think that will affect the Aussie dollar? Yeah, look, the Aussie dollar's been remarkably resilient, as as we know, low 73s. Interestingly, it's actually gone up very strongly against the euro and even the British pound. So it's been a bit of an Aussie dollar story. Look, I think, as we saw just with the GDP numbers, yeah, 0.9, not a bad result. We've also had, as you mentioned, the company profits were okay, building approvals were okay. So the the economy in Australia is actually maybe just coming back onto the radar of some foreign investors. They're sort of looking at the growth momentum and thinking that things aren't quite as catastrophic as they were led to believe when when you just focused on the mining sector. Obviously, that was not a good good look. But um, so I think even though the Fed's hiking interest rates later this month probably. The dollar is finding some friends. It's actually, there's been a bit of a reinvestment back into the Aussie. And even though our interest rates are still very low and the Fed's going to be hiking, our interest rates are still considerably above those in in Europe, throughout Japan. uh, And that yield pickup, and we're still a little above the US, of course, uh, and that yield pickup is still very attractive to a lot of investors as they look around the world for opportunities just to get that little bit of running yield. Australia is one of those countries that still has it. Yeah, the UK doesn't have it. Canada it doesn't have it. Um, so we're one of these um, uh, countries that's always in the mind of investors and it's a bit of a buy the dips approach. So where do you see the GDP tracking now, the Australian GDP? Yeah, well, funnily enough, um, just looking at the very mechanical run rate, when we get the next quarter's numbers, I know the, these ones have only just come out, but when we get the uh, December quarter GDP numbers in early March, we have a 0.4 dropping out of your uh, out of your run rate, if you know what I mean. So if we get another 0.9, let's assume that all of a sudden our year-over-year GDP is at 3%, which will be the first time we've seen that in quite a few years. So in a sense, um, my my hunch is that real GDP and the export volumes are doing okay, retail sales are, you know, they're okay, they're not strong, but they're certainly not bad either, uh, that we do have the ability to track up towards uh, 3%. There has been a bit of a confidence rebound with the with the Turnbull government and, and Morrison as treasurer. And okay, these are the September quarter numbers, so that, you know, the change of government had zero impact on these numbers. But if this 
mini pickup, and it's not been a strong pickup, but it's been a noticeable one nonetheless. If this pickup in business sentiment and consumer confidence over the last couple of months since Turnbull took over does uh, is reflected in a little bit of a pickup in business investment, a little bit of a pickup in consumer spending, particularly into the Christmas period, then maybe, just maybe when we kick off 2016, we will have GDP at, at three or even a touch higher. That would be quite remarkable. So where would you see interest rates uh, heading at that point uh, with the Australian economy growing so strongly? Oh, look, well, at the moment they're on hold and as the RBA said, we do have a fair bit of spare capacity in the economy. So we, we can grow at three or three and a quarter for, for a little while before we actually run into inflation problems. And of course, the actual inflation rate's remarkably low. So we can actually have a quarter or two, you know, a bit of a pickup in inflation before we get worried. So I think the safest bet um, is that rates are on hold for many, many months to come, that we you know, get well into we get well into 2016 and the RBA is still on hold. Of course, the nuance will be, do they move from this you know, loose bias to cut rates? Of course, at the moment, they still have said that you know, if conditions work and we're going to cut rates, and that's fine. But you know, they've been known to change their rhetoric. And uh, if... If we do get the GDP numbers reflected in you know, better growth in the period ahead, if the pickup in business and consumer confidence translates into stronger economic activity, they're not only going to move away from we've got the scope to cut rates, the RBA may well start to think, well, interest rates are remarkably low. We, The Feds probably will have hiked a few times by the middle of next year. And you know, there may even be this risk of a tightening bias. I know a couple of the big banks are calling rate hikes in the second half of 2016. That looks to be a fair call from my perspective. Civic Coolest, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. So what do you think, Leon? Well, yeah, look, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting. It'll be, I think it's going to be fascinating because at the same time, non-mining investment is very low. Mining investment has fallen through the floor. So this is totally reliant on household expenditure now and, um, and exports going up. And uh, so let's see what the next set of numbers does. But I still think it's a bit fragile. Uh, yes, it is. I mean, wine is, is doing well on a, on a 70-odd cent dollar, but wine isn't a major part of the economy. So we're going to be down into trying to assemble a large number of smaller components by the look yeah, of it. Yeah, well, the, the latest GDP numbers remind me of my old school reports, which say, doing well but could do better. <laughs> you mean we were the same back then? That's right, that's right. <laughs> Good oh, And now the news. Well, Gary, uh, most fascinating is that the IMF is going to add the one to its basket of reserve currencies. Uh, that's an international stamp of approval of the strides China has made integrating into a global economic system dominated for decades by the US, Europe and Japan. Now, the International Monetary Fund's executive board, which represents the fund's 188 member nations, decided the yuan meets the standard of being freely usable and will join the dollar, euro, pound and yen in its special drawing rights basket. Now, that's the first change in the basket since 1999 when the euro replaced the Deutsche Mark and French flank. And it's also a milestone in decades-long ascent towards international credibility for the yuan, which was created after World War II and for years could only be used domestically in the Chinese-controlled nation. Yeah, of course, the one is not floated, is it? it? There's a bit of a worry about the uh, rate against the American dollar. That's right. So let's just see how that develops. But it's certainly 
could mean that, uh, I mean, some economists are saying 2016 is going to be the year of the one. So let's take a look. But at the same time, China's official manufacturing purchasing managers index, which is a gauge of the nation's factory activity, fell to 49.6 in November. That's down from a reading of 49.8 a month ago. And that suggests that the worst of a slowdown in the world's second largest economy mightn't be over yet. Now, this figure released by the National Bureau of Statistics indicates a fourth straight month of contraction in manufacturing activity. And that adds to fears that China's deceleration might continue to weigh on the global economy. That's despite that raft of stimulus measures undertaken by Beijing. And looks like they'll have to um, widen that a bit, particularly in the uh, you know the middle class. That's right. And according to Deloitte Access Economics, it's going to have a big impact on Australia. In fact, they're saying it's set to leave budget def- deficits in the four years to 2018-19. $38 billion worse than predicted in the May budget. Now, companies' taxes in 2015-16 will be a bare 5% above their pre-GFC peak. And China's woes have put a banana skin under share markets, meaning we won't see superannuation taxes coming within cooey of their pre-GFC peak any time at all in the next few years. And finally, China's move from a boom to a tricky transition means much the same is happening to Australian wages. And wages are outstripping productivity gains for the glory years of the boom, but have since dropped to record lows. And that ensures revenue write-downs in PAYG collections, which is a heart of the Australian budget. And Deloitte says a gridlock in the Senate is making the job of budget repair all the harder. Yeah, maybe he's going to make a change in the GST a bit more likely. Well, let's just see what happens. Brazil has announced its plan to sue Brazilian iron ore miner Samarco and its two shareholders BHP Billiton and Vale for uh, 20 billion rias, which is about 5.2 billion US dollars, over the burst tailings dams that killed 13 people and devastated the country's second largest river, the Rio Doce Basin. Now, the money paid by the miners will not be paid to the coffers of a federal government or the states involved in the disaster. Instead, it's setting up a fund to finance the actions to repair the damages. And this lawsuit represents the biggest government response so far to the disaster. And BHP shares, of course, have been hammered in the wake of the disaster and weakening commodity prices. bit like that uh, beat up that Shell cop for the uh, oil spill in America. That's right. Now, of course, uh, Malcolm Turnbull was this week in Paris and uh, it was revealed that he won't sign an international agreement to phase out fossil fuel subsidies amid concerns it could jeopardise Australia's diesel fuel rebates. And now Mr Turnbull opted out of signing the key fossil fuel subsidy reform communicate major United Nations climate talks there in Paris. Now, more than 30 countries and hundreds of businesses signed the communique calling for the ultimate elimination of fossil fuel subsidies, saying the cost should both reflect environmental costs and supply costs. Now, partial phase-out could generate 12% of the emissions reduction needed by 2020 to be on the path to limiting global warming to two degrees. But Mr Turnbull won't bow to international pressures and join the call on Monday because MPs back home, particularly in the National Party, are concerned that the agreement could harm the diesel subsidies claimed by farmers and miners. Yeah, meanwhile, both BHP and Rio Tinto are selling off their coal mines. That's right, that's right. They're getting out of coal. Getting out of coal. India's probably the only market because China's uh, dropping it as well. That's right. Australia has only just begun to tumble over the mining investment cliff, according to new forecasts. Mining investment is set to fall a further 58% over the next three years after sliding 11% in 2014-15. That's according to BIS Shrapnel. They say excluding oil and gas mining investments are already half since the peak and would fall a further 40% over the next two years, a 70% decline overall from top to bottom. And oil investment Oil and gas investment will slide 67% over the next two years because projects are completed. And they're saying it's highly unlikely they'll be replaced with similar-sized projects. And investment in oil and gas will stabilise around $20 billion per year, which is down from 
present rate of $61.3 billion. Yeah, quite a long way down. It's a long way down. Now, Dun & Bradstreet's latest business expectations surveys indicates a fairly subdued outlook for the first quarter of 2016, with the results continuing to fall short of expectations. As the new year approaches, businesses are reporting lowered expectations for activities across sales, profits, employers, and capital investments. And out of a seven-industry sector survey, five showed a decrease in their individual expectations index compared to the previous quarter. Sales expectations are tracking lower across all industries except for transport, communication, and utilities, so it's not good. Now, iron ore has find, failed to find a floor in offshore trade. It's it's plunged to a new 10-year nadir, and at the end of the latest session, benchmark iron ore for immediate delivery to the port of Tianjin in China was trading at $41.60 a tonne. Uh, that's down from its previous close of $42.10.80 a tonne. So it's heading down to the 40s, and uh, there are some traders who are saying, or some analysts are saying, it's going to trade in the 30s. Yeah, the the main Chinese uh, opinion seems to be 40s where it's at for quite a while. And that's going to really affect the MyEFO statement too. It It really will affect government revenues. Uh, The benchmark price uh, for iron ore is the lowest since the steel index began releasing its data in 2008, the weakest mark since 2005 when miners used to set yearly benchmark contracts with Chinese steelmakers. Although, on the other hand, um, there are some positive uh, signs for the economy. Um, Signs that the economy is making its transition from mining, profits and business borrowing are rising according to the latest figures from the Australian Bureau of Statistics and Reserve Bank of Australia. The ABS data shows that gross operating profits rose by better than expected 1.3% in the June quarter and Reserve Bank of Australia financial aggregates show that lending increased 0.7% for the month and annual growth of lending is now growing at its fastest rate in nearly six years. So that's interesting. It is indeed, yeah. Well, some of it I guess is the Turnbull effect which uh, may be uh, wearing off a bit but um, yeah, I think there is more confidence around and that's the key to it that's right now uh the uh our current account deficit narrowed to $18.1 billion in the September quarter, with the resources sector putting in a strong $2 billion increased contributions. Export rose by $3.6 billion, representing a 6% gain. Iron ore exports rose 4% to $637 million. Oil and gas exports were up 10% to $508 million. And as a result, the RBA has held the official interest rate steady at its current record low of 2%. And Governor Glenn Stevens says the board says that the prospect for an immediate improvement in economic conditions had firmed a little over recent months and that living the cash rate and change was appropriate. Maybe even down the track a little rise. That's right, as uh, Sim Kukulis was flagging. Yes. And um, Now, uh, the GDP figures we discussed with Stephen Kukulis, um, gross domestic product, uh, grew a seasonally just a 0.9% in the three months to the end of September. And uh, all the other economists were predicting it would go up 0.7%, 0.8%, and that gives a growth rate of 2.5%, and that's a big gain from an outwardly revised 0.3% pace of growth in the June quarter. An economist surveyed by Bloomberg had tipped 8.8% growth for the September quarter. So, you know, it's it's a big increase. Yes. Now, the number of buildings approved surge in October, smashing economists' forecasts. But that was boosted by a big rise in apartment approvals. The trend result for building approvals, which smooths out month-to-month volatility in the visual data, continues to show a prolonged decline in the sector. What's holding it up, according to the ABS, is apartments approval. They 
they rose 3.9% to a total of 19,652 dwellings. What we're seeing, of course, is the end of the uh, quarter-acre block. That's right. Thing, uh, you know, smaller apartments and the changing nature of the cities. That's right. So we've got more approval of apartment blocks and townhouses. But that's a pretty volatile figure. Now, embattled grocery wholesaler Metcash has reported a 20% jump in its first half after-tax profit, but underlying earnings fell as its food and grocery division struggled. In the six months of September 31, Metcash has reported profit after-tax rose 20% to $122 million on a 1.4% lift in sales to $6.6 billion. But underlying earnings before interest and tax slid 12.7% to $133.7 million, and underlying profit after tax slumped 6.1% to $86.9 million. Now, the truth is the ASX-listed firm has been battling intense competition in the grocery sector from Aldi and Coles. Metcash back independents are really struggling now. Yeah, that's right. And of course, Aldi is the dagger hanging over Metcash, uh, over the IGA. Aldi's a privately owned German company. It's got very, very deep pockets and uh, it can afford to lose money in Australia for years. And we don't know, we just don't know how long uh, the independent grocers have got left. I mean, there are some analysts who are saying that they won't that they won't last another decade. Now, final bit of news is that electronics retailer Dick Smith will book a $60 million non-cash write-down, and it's warning it mightn't meet its profit guidance for the financial year amid uncertain Christmas trading. And Dick Smith started an inventory review following a disappointing October retail performance and said November was well below expectations. So so they're probably going to have sales, which is going to really worry outfits like uh, JB Hi-Fi. Yeah, very and, uh, likely. And Harvey Norman. And Harvey Norman as well. But it's also you know, a loss of um, loss of the market to the online. Buying something from the US is now dead simple. And that's it for this week, Gary. Good, Leon. And next week we've got an interview with John Ellis. And uh, he's uh, going to be talking to us about his investor site. And uh, in the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBizZ or on Facebook. Take care and we'll talk to you next week.